This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 15. Episode 28. This is Writing Excuses, Small Evils. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Victoria. I'm Dan. And I'm trying to be bigger. <laughs> um, Victoria, you pitched this idea to us. Will you explain what you mean by small evils? I do. I will. I will. Um, I am fascinated by villainy and antagonism. It's one of the guiding principles along my stories. So the thing that I'm really interested in is the idea of, as I said, small evils as compared to big ones. And the way the example I always give is it's Voldemort compared to Umbridge, Dolores Umbridge, one of the prime villains in chapter five of the Harry Potter series. And the reason is that um, world domination is not a very grounded concept. It's not something that the vast majority of people can relate to. But almost all of us, I'm pretty sure, have felt a small evil inside of us. We've either been jealous or covetousness. We've felt slighted. We felt as though somebody hasn't given us the attention or the spotlight. And I am fascinated by the way in which these small antagonisms can become small evils that can make very grounded, nuanced villains. Yeah, and I, I love the way that you uh, told about told us about this earlier. That you know, none of us have met a Voldemort, but no. we've all met an Umbridge, yes. right? Some domineering or tyrannical person that we've had to deal with at school or at work or you know in our own home, and so we can relate to that instinctively. Yeah, I love it. And I was writing a series uh, called the Villains series, Vicious and Vengeful, which genuinely explored this on the most grounded level possible. I wanted to see if I could write a book without heroes and still make you root for one of them. And so it became an exploration of small evils. It became an exploration, not of the things that people do, but of the things that motivate them to do those things. And it becomes about the relatability of the motive. I had a character who um, basically had a God complex and that was not relatable. And so people were had a very easy time casting him in the role of the villain. I had another character doing the exact same evils in terms of the what, but his why was very different. And the why was simply that he wanted revenge on this other character because of a massing, massive falling out that they had. And what I found was the people could absolutely relate to the sociopathic character who was bitter about his falling out. And nobody could relate to the sociopathic character who had a God complex. Mm. And so it became an exploration of motive and of really create motive turning antagonists into protagonists. Um, we've often talked about how a lot of times the stories with the strongest villains tend to be the best stories. Um, uh, you know, strength of the protagonist is directly related to how difficult it is to overcome the villain and how interesting that villain is. Um, it's not all one-to-one, -one, but... It's not, but I think so. I'm very anti the concept that, like, when you're talking about love stories, that two halves make a whole. Mm -hmm. But when we're talking about hero and villain or protagonist and antagonist, I absolutely believe that two halves make a whole. That our hero and our villain or our protagonist and our antagonist, for a less dramatic turn of phrase, are in constant conversation. And weirdly, right. one of the examples that I always give of this is Batman and the Joker. Because if you look at what kind of character Joker is, he is formed directly to fit all of Batman's fears. Like Batman is a complete control freak who wants to have, you know, power over his environment, control over his city, who wants to set things right. And Joker is an avatar of anarchy, an avatar of chaos and of everything that Batman fears and can't control. I absolutely believe in writing your 
heroes and villains not only with the same amount of thought and the same amount of humanity, but also of thinking about them as things which are foils in constant conversations with each other. Right. The best uh, hero-villain pairs are the ones that espouse contrasting philosophies about life or have the same goal— but very different philosophies getting there. Uh, Magneto tends to be my yes, favorite um, villain from comic books uh, because they have, over the years, built this contrasting philosophy between him, him and Professor X that you can see they both are aligned on trying right. to achieve the same thing and approach it in very different methods. Yeah, talk about a philosophical divide. Though mm-hmm. One of my favorite things that I heard recently from another writer was that the thing that makes villains so much more interesting is that Um, they don't have a fall from grace that can happen. They can move upward. And so they tend to actually protect certain people or have caveats to their villainy, whereas the hero can justify almost anything they do for the right cause. And so there's a fascinating space between the hero and the villain where one has has the ability to rise and the other one has the constant tension of falling. So um, some of my best, my favorite moments in books are when the villain has a chance to you, know, you see, and you bring it. You're like, wow, they could at this point make the decision to go. You know, good. Good is kind of difficult to talk. It just yeah. they mm-hmm. can make the decision we want them to make, and they don't. And we can totally see why they don't. And it breaks your heart, exactly. right? Like a villain breaking my heart is one of the things that I just <laughs> I love when a story is able to do that. Well, and connected to that, I love redemptive villains. I love that moment where you get there. And then they do the thing. And you're like, wait, you've been the antagonist for two whole books. Now in the third one, you know, Zuko does this uh, in the Avatar series. He becomes one of the heroes by mm-hmm. the end. And it's handled so well. In in terms of in terms of genre, in terms of story type, I think that the the small evils villain uh sees a lot of play in the the team sports stories. Because ultimately, the triumph of these stories is team comes together and wins. It's not team comes together and overthrows the Dark Lord. (laughs) Um, And that story can work just fine if there is no villain at all. But they, they really become grounded for us when we have minor antagonists who may be on the same team. You know, people we, we're not getting along with that are preventing us from coming together or a rival on the other team who is doing things they shouldn't be doing in order to undermine us, but that's still not super villainy. It's small and we can relate. And I'm going to make an argument for why we love villains with small evils as compared to large evils. And it is the slight, um, almost like virtual sadism of the reader a little bit, but basically they allow us to look at avatars of people who feel the things that we have felt in our lives and who act out on those things in ways that we cannot. I think there's an immense satisfaction in reading like a villain lowercase v or a villain with small evils because we do see ourselves in them. We always see ourselves in the negatives of a character, very rarely in the positives. Very rarely do we go into the adventure and be like, I can relate to that hero. I feel just as brave. Usually it's like, I can relate to that antagonist. I have felt this way before. And so I think, I don't know, when I write my villain series, I get a lot of messages from people who are like, this woman got to act out in a way that I obviously can't because societally dictates that I don't go and burn my ex-husband into ash. But it was very satisfying to read. And I think we get some satisfaction from getting to watch people be bad. It's sometimes why we enjoy watching a hero have a fall 
and descend. I remember growing up on Smallville and loving when Clark Kent got his hands on red kryptonite because we got to see that let loose. And that letting loose, which is a thing that villains do so much more readily than heroes, is a very enjoyable reading process. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Uh, let's stop for our book of the week, which is a book called King of Liars by the author Nick Martell. This is an arc that I was given by my agent um, for a new epic fantasy. I honestly don't know if it'll be out yet. By the time this episode goes live, it should be around this time. Um, I really enjoyed this. Uh, debut authors are always fun to read. I like to see what the the new writers are doing, and uh, often they make me try to level up my own writing. And like, man, if the kids are doing stuff like this these days, I got I got to get better. Um, this story is very fun because it's about um, it's about a family. They're called the King uh, Kingmen, not the Kingsmen. Uh, <laughs> the Kingmen, and uh, they were um, this family whose job was to kind of help. Protect the throne, and the protagonist's father instead betrayed the throne. Um, and he lives under the shadow of his father having been the kingman who went against the uh, the rules. They have a very stratified society. It's got all sorts of interesting politics and things to it. Um, it's got a very cool world building with a shattered moon that is constantly dropping debris on the planet, which is a very science fiction concept. Take it to fantasy, which is the sort of stuff I like. Um, and it's kind of about his story with, of deciding, is he a villain? Is his father, was his father a villain? What is, what it, where is, where, where is the evil? And there are small evils all over this story. Um, it's less about, uh, about superpowered characters fighting other superpowered characters, more about the sticky messiness that comes from family expectations and societal expectations, uh, in an epic fantasy package. So, uh, Kingdom of Liars by Nick Martell. Also, you hit on something in that pitch that mm-hmm. I want to talk about yeah, because it's about it. perspective. Yeah. It's about that, you know, we obviously, it's a very trite phrase that like the villain tends to be the hero of their own journey, but we really can think about the fact that we choose when we're writing who is our protagonist and who is our antagonist. Mm-hmm. And it's it's fascinating to analyze a little bit why we choose these things, understanding that if we flipped a narrative or if we shifted the narrative one scene to the left or one person over, we could end up with a completely different dynamic here. And so I often challenge myself when I'm writing protagonist and antagonist to make sure that I write the antagonist as someone who doesn't necessarily feel like they're right, but could through a different lens. It's, I always say it's the like the Gryffindors versus the Slytherins. There's like the Gryffindors are written as the heroes in that story from a perspectival sense. And so they get centered in the narrative. But I'm always interested in what happens when you shift the narrative one over. There's a, there's a book for younger readers out right now called Nevermore that essentially follows like a girl who is kind of set up to become like a supervillain, like a Voldemort magic villain. And it's about like, what happens if she didn't choose this, but the world is so afraid of the kind of power that she has that they have essentially vilified her in, in advance. And I'm fascinated by the idea that we choose the perspective and in so choosing, we do choose who our heroes are. You know, one of the, one of my favorite villain kind of series to look at is actually the oceans series, oceans 11 through 13. Um, Partly because they do what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Like, there is this small evil. The The first movie is this big heist, and it's all very stylized, and it's all very cute. Uh, 
But at the core of it is, you ruined my life and you stole my wife. And so now I'm going to steal her back. Which, you know, not only is that a, a very relatable thing and a very small evil, but you could totally flip the story around like you're talking. And if the casino owner was the protagonist, here's this old ex-con who's coming to wreck my home and steal my wife from me. And I think that that's amazing. Yeah, it's the comprehension of both sides. You don't have to Mm -hmm. root for both sides equally, but it's really important that you understand why the villain or antagonist feels the way they do about the protagonist. And to follow that on, you look at Ocean's 12, which is the least loved and least successful of the series. It does not have a strong villain at all. And the villain that it has has no personal connection to the characters. And so that's why when they got to the third in the series, they're like, nope, we have to bring this back to basics. We have to have a villain that there's a reason to dislike them. Um, Because the whole that not having a strong villain leaves ruins every other part of the movie. And that movie in particular, um, that series, like there are series you can get away with your villain being a little bit weak. Mm -hmm. Um, And it works for certain situations. But in that series, you have to root for bad guys. Yeah. And to do that, that series puts you against someone worse. That's the whole framing device of why you can root for these people doing pretty terrible things. Um, And while those movies absolutely need a strong villain for that reason. I want to bring up a a principle here. It's the the principle of external costs. Um, The idea that you profit on something because there is a cost that you didn't need to pay, but that somebody else did. And... For me, one of the one of the easiest definitions of evil is once you know about the external cost, you shrug it off and say, eh, somebody else will pay it. A horrifying example of this, which didn't doesn't actually end in horror, this morning as we were picking grapes to bring to the craft services table, Sandra found actual ripe, deadly nightshade in and among the grape plants. Okay, a handful of these berries will kill a child. The neighbor child, the toddler, loves wandering over to our yard and eating grapes off the vine. Deciding not to weed when we don't know about the deadly nightshade is just deciding not to weed and there's a tragedy. But once you've seen that plant, deciding not to immediately drop everything and rip them all up and tell the neighbor, well, now I've become evil. And it's just a little thing. Maybe nothing will happen. But that's evil. This, you, you should get to that at some point. Yeah, <laughs> this steps into the last point that I, I made wanted. my son do it. This, By which I mean, I asked Sandra to make my son do it, and then I checked before I left. This steps into the last point that I want to make, which is one of escalation. And one of my favorite examples to give from recent pop culture is Vulture in Spider-Man Homecoming, mm-hmm. Michael Keaton's character. And what's so amazing about that character is it starts from such a grounded place And it is an escalation of minute choices. It is an escalation of a man trying to care for his family who ends up having his job taken away from him, who then decides he'll just have to sell the products that he has on the black market, who then escalates into a much larger business, who then escalates into, obviously, a villain and murderer and terrifying human. And I think that is probably my favorite thing is to remember whether you're rewinding from villain back into human or fast forwarding from human like your standard human character into villain, that there is a process that happens there. 
Nobody just starts out and is like, I'm going to take over the world. There is something that happens to displace them or set them at odds with the norms of society or with the good guys or whoever's on the other side that makes them feel not only self-othering, but as though they belong in the place that they're in. So we're out of time for this episode. Let's go to our homework, which you are very excited about. I am, because it's a direct extrapolation of the thing that I was just talking about. So often you'll be told, if you were the hero of the story, what would it look like? But I essentially want the listeners to become the villain of the story. I want them to take their own petty grievances. I want them to take their own perceived weaknesses, their own uh, cracks in their armor of life, the things that they know get to them. And I want you to start asking yourself, What steps stand between you as you are now and you as a villain of a narrative? What would it take and what would it look like? And I think this is important because it's that reminder that all villains started normal at some point. So like, just start extrapolating it out and see what kind of villain you would be. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go create some evil. (laughs) And and do the weeding, please. (laughs) Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.